from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello, I'm Ian Bond. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy at the Centre for European Reform. Welcome to the latest CER podcast. I'm joined today by Charles Grant, the Director of the CER, to discuss the situation in Belarus. We had hoped to be joined by Charles's wife, Katya Glod, who's in Minsk at the moment. Uh, but unfortunately, because the Belarusian regime has taken down the internet, we have not been able to connect with her, although Charles has been able to exchange text messages with her, so hopefully has some up-to-date information about the situation on the ground. Let me also say that we're recording this on the morning of Tuesday, the 11th of August. Uh, so by the time you listen to it, a lot may have happened on the ground in Belarus, and we we may know more about the evolving situation there. I mean, first of all, let me start by sketching in some of the background, and then I'll ask Charles about the latest developments. Alexander Lukashenko has been the president of Belarus since 1994, and that was really the last time that Belarus had a freeish and fairish election. Since then, all the elections have been rigged to a greater or lesser extent, and Lukashenko has consolidated his power very effectively over the last 26 years. He's often described as Europe's last dictator. Sadly, I, I think he now has competition from a number of other undemocratic rulers in Europe. But nonetheless, he is the, the longest standing and in some ways one of the most effective of Europe's dictators. Anyway, he faced re-election again on the 9th of August on Sunday, and rather to his surprise, came up against some genuine opposition in the form of Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, is the wife of the intended opposition candidate. Uh, he's been thrown in prison by Lukashenko, and the the two other main candidates, one is in prison and the other has fled the country. So so Svetlana Tikhonovskaya was, as it were, the last woman standing, uh, and she's run a pretty effective campaign and organised some quite significant rallies and looked as though she was going to win a significant level of support. Well, the Central Electoral Commission in Belarus had other ideas. They have put out figures already suggesting that Lukashenko won about 80% of the vote, and she won about 10% of the vote, whereas evidence from independent observers and from one or two polling stations which defied instructions on what figures they should report and gave out honest figures on the number of votes cast suggest that actually Tikhonovskaya probably won this election. But Charles, against that background, what, do you, what can you tell us about the situation and what's going on there at the moment? Well, two days after the election, it's still a very unclear situation. There have been two nights of violence, barricades of Molotov cocktails. Uh, one or two demonstrators have been killed by the police. 3,000 people had been arrested, according to the government. That was what they said yesterday morning. So the numbers are much greater now. I don't know how long these protests will continue. It's a very unclear situation. 
where is Mrs. Tikhanovskaya now? Well, today she left the country. She didn't really flee the country. I think when she was detained uh, on Monday at the Central Election Commission for seven hours, she struck an effective bargain with the authorities. They said they would, if she left the country, they would release her campaign manager who'd been arrested. That's why she's left the country to be with her children who are in Lithuania. Her husband, of course, as you said, is already said, is in, in prison. Certainly, um, most of the, in, as you mentioned, Ian, that some of the polling stations have been honest and returned the true figures. On that basis, it looks like she won between 70 to 80 percent of the vote, uh, and Lukashenko may have won around 10 percent of the vote. She embodied the, all those in Belarus who hoped for change, all the other opposition candidates who mattered came round to rallying to her cause. She, because she's not a politician, she inspired them with her sort of honest, homespun, down-to-earth, apolitical campaign. She said she was simply uh, ruled for a f- the country for a few months, organised free and fair elections, released the political prisoners, and then stand down. I think she, she came across as very credible. And I think one point to make is that Although it looks like this election looks like previous elections in Belarus with Lukashenko the winner, actually it's very different this time. Previously, he has manipulated the figures. He didn't have to do a massive manipulation because he was quite good. Truth is now he's lost popularity this year for reasons we'll come on to discuss in a second. Uh, so he had to do a massive manipulation. And that, what, the other thing that's changed is that civil society has really grown up this year. There's been a massive, well-organised, non-governmental groups of people, firstly organising um, during the pandemic, to deal with that because the government itself did very little to help people during the pandemic. Secondly, mobilised um, for the election campaign. Civil society has grown dramatically strong because the government has mishandled the pandemic and then the repression during the election campaign really annoyed a lot of people. And that led to this massive move to civil society, which is not going to go away. We don't know what's going to happen in Belarus, but I think the civil society has moved ahead in leaps and bounds and is not going to go away quietly anytime soon. Well, that raises an interesting question about the stability and security of the the regime. Uh, I mean, you know, very often these revolutions only succeed when parts of the elite decide that they the game is up, as it were, and that uh, you know it, it's in their interests to to switch sides. Is there any sign of of that happening? Is there any sign of regime elite? splintering or has Lukashenko so far been successful in keeping all of the powerful figures in Belarus on his side? For the moment, he's been fairly successful. There have been a few small splinters in the regime visible. As we've discussed these polling stations that reported true figures. Also, in quite a lot of provincial towns, the police disobeyed the instruction to sweep the demonstrators off the streets. The demonstrators have not just been in Minsk, they've been all over the country. There's no significant uh, splintering of the regime at a senior level. Yet, my own judgment would be that this regime is quite safe and secure in the short term because it, it controls the guns and is prepared to use force. But in the long run, if these demonstrations continue at some length, week after week. And if then, then that may encourage some elements of the regime to splinter. Then, then Lukashenko is in serious trouble. I mean, we have to understand the reasons why these protests have been driven by with such determination by so many people. They are fed up. The standard of living has been declining for the past five years. The Russians have reduced the subsidies to the regime, which has helped to contribute to the decline in living standards. The governments have, successive governments have failed to modernise the economy. So living standards are heading down. And then you had this awful business of COVID-19 with no lockdown at all because the government didn't take COVID-19 seriously. And you've had the brutal behaviour of the government during the election campaign, which has really annoyed people. So my own guess is that very few people really support Lukashenko now. I think his regime has lost legitimacy. So he can only stay in charge if he's prepared to use brute force, which he, which he can do in the short term. It's not clear he can go on doing that forever. Yeah. 
I mean, the, the external factors are clearly going to be quite important. And I'd like to come on to what the European Union should be doing a bit later. But perhaps I might say a bit about the the Russian position, because you've referred to the fact that um, the Russians have been reducing their subsidies to, uh, to Belarus, and that's uh, created quite a bit of uh, economic hardship. It's quite noticeable that although Putin was among the first to congratulate Lukashenko on his re-election, his message came with quite a lot of language about further steps towards the integration of Belarus and and Russia. Uh, and I think there's an implicit threat there from Putin to Lukashenko that um, if he wants to retain Russian support, he also has to be more attentive to Russian proposals and Russian needs in the area of integration between the, the two states. But I wonder, I mean, Charles, do you have any sense of whether, you know, the Russians fear a sort of colour revolution in Minsk and whether you, you have any thoughts on how far they might be prepared to go to support Lukashenko? I think the Russians are very much in two minds about Lukashenko. As, as you said, Ian, Putin has tried to encourage Belarus to join a much closer system of integration with Russia than it has done, the so-called Union State that was sketched out back in the 1990s. It's got, it's got Belarus in the Eurasian Economic Union, which is a sort of quasi-EU for economic cooperation. There's some cooperation on defence systems like air defence. Russia has a couple of military bases in Belarus, which it wants to expand. But Belarus has resisted and Lukashenko has resisted with the support of most of the people. It hasn't wanted to see much closer integration with Russia. But because Lukashenko is running out of options as regards his economy, because he needs bailing out with a few billion dollars at the very least, because the West isn't going to give him that money because of his abuse of human rights, he really has little choice but to turn towards Russia. And I think Putin's got Lukashenko where he wants him, namely weaker, dependent on Russian favours, and probably having to give in on some of the issues that he has resisted in recent years, such as a currency union with Russia, for example. Yeah, that's that's interesting because that question of Lukashenko's relative weakness with respect to Russia is obviously a concern also for Western countries, for the European Union, and also for the for the Americans. I mean, the EU's history of relations with Belarus uh, has been of zigzags of the imposition of sanctions for various human rights violations for disappearing opponents in the 1990s for rigging elections and so on, interspersed with attempts to uh, to improve the relationship with um, Lukashenko and to try to keep him out of the hands of, of Russia. So, I mean, what do you think the EU needs to do now in circumstances where clearly, you know, Lukashenko has um, needed more violence than usual in order to hold on to power and more rigging of the elections than in the past? You know, does the EU take a geopolitical view since uh, Ursula von der Leyen talks of having a geopolitical commission and thinks solely in terms of keeping Belarus out of the hands of Russia? Or does it take a principled position based on its values and say there have to be consequences for violations of human rights and democratic norms? You know, where, where, what advice would you be offering to the EU, Charles? Well, I think the EU is in a very difficult position. For one thing, it has very few levers it can pull to influence Belarus. It gives only something like 30 million euros of aid a year to the country, which is nothing. It does have it in its Eastern Partnership, so-called, which allows Belarus to take part in a number of other EU programmes together with other Eastern 
countries. It does have the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and the European Investment Bank, both active in the countries. It has some small levers it can play. It could, if it really wanted, give, give balance of payments support to the country. They certainly wouldn't want to do so at the moment. But it doesn't have a lot of levers compared to Russia. Russia, as we just to Russia. Russia can, it wants, turn off the oil and gas supplies. It can ban Belarusian farm products from its markets, which is actually to some degree done already. Russia has a lot of direct levers it can use to apply pressure to the country, while the EU does not. And it's actually because of the Russian dimension that the EU is very nervous about Belarus. It worries that if it gets too tough on the country and imposes too strict sanctions on the regime of Alexander Lukashenko, then Lukashenko has really no choice but to turn towards Russia and to become much more integrated with Russia in the way we've just discussed. So the EU is very nervous about getting tough on Lukashenko. Nevertheless, the EU is, a, is, a, is, a, is an organisation committed to the rule of law as its leaders, such as Ursula von der Leyen and Angela Merkel, have made absolutely clear. And so it, it will have to take measures. And the, the only question is what measures it takes and how quickly it takes them. What it is saying to the Belarusian regime at the moment is the measures we take will depend on how brutal you are and the way you treat your own people. So if, if there's progressive and worsening violence night after night committed by the regime, then the sanctions will be stronger. And if the violence is less or the political prisons get released, then there may not be sanctions at all. But I think at the moment, there's almost no chance of the regime suddenly becoming nice and cuddly and releasing political, political prisoners. So there will, there will almost certainly be EU sanctions. It'll take a bit of time to organise them. First of all, the ministers have to decide to, to introduce those sanctions. Then they ask their officials to come back with a list of individuals who can be targeted. Because I think what we're going to see is targeted sanctions on those individuals who are directly responsible for the violence and the human rights abuse. They will lose the visa right to come to the European Union and they will face financial sanctions as well with their bank accounts. And then the second group of officials to be targeted are those responsible for the electoral fraud who've um, committed the, the, the malpractice and the, the false counting of the voting results. So I think we're going to see two, two groups of officials targeted by EU sanctions. And these sanctions will actually be quite painful because the Belarusian elite love to go and shop in Vilnius and other EU, EU capitals. And if they're not allowed to go there anymore, that'll be a bit of a blow to some of them. What I think the EU will avoid is the kind of economic, broader economic sanctions that would hurt the Belarusian people. It doesn't want to do that. So targeted sanctions on individuals, but probably not so many sanctions on the country it, itself. Uh, and I think it'll take a while till, till these emerge because the EU moves quite slowly and it'll be hoping against hope that the regime suddenly moderates and releases the prisoners. But that, that's not going to happen anytime soon, I fear. I mean, one question is about EU unity. I mean, in the past, perhaps paradoxically or perhaps not, some of the countries closest to Belarus have been those um, arguing for the EU to go softly, softly and not to uh, to push Lukashenko into a, a corner where he might decide that the Russians were the best option. I mean, it seems to me that you know, reactions from Latvia, Lithuania and Poland in particular uh, this time around are actually quite quite strong. But will it be easy to get EU consensus on imposing the, the kind of targeted sanctions that you have, have uh, discussed there? Or, uh, or will there be some opposition? I think it'll be fairly easy, but I'm not certain because the problem is Hungary, as, as in so many EU stories today. Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister, uh, is, a, is a strong man himself and recognises in Alexander Lukashenko a fellow strong man. And Orban has a clear principle that, that the EU should never interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. He is uh, fairly chummy with Lukashenko. He visited the country only a few months ago and said there should be no sanctions on, on Lukashenko. That was before the, the recent violence, however. And because Orban is close to 
the Polish government, the law and justice government in Poland. And they are at the other end of the spectrum on how Belarus should be treated, want strong sanctions, calling for a dialogue between the government and the opposition in Belarus. My guess is that Orban won't, won't be the, the, the one person who resists EU sanctions. I think the Poles will encourage their friends in Hungary to come along with the rest of the EU, and Orban would prefer to fight other battles against the EU than defending Belarus. So my guess is there will be approval for the kind of sanctions we discussed, but, but Orban may try to water them down to some degree. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very good point. Let me perhaps finally turn to the situation in in Washington. I mean, normally on an issue of this sort, you would expect to have some leadership from the the US. Uh, The US has been quite slow to respond at all to what's been going on. And of course, in a way, that may reflect the fact that over recent months, the US has been trying to warm up its relationship with Lukashenko. Uh, Mike Pompeo even visited Minsk and the US has restored uh, relations at ambassadorial level after a very long gap. So, you know, what, what if anything, can we expect from the Americans and, and will their considerations be similar to those of the EU or do they have other interests that they're trying to protect with Belarus? It's a bit unclear where the US is on this. I think this, as so often in US foreign policy, there's a bit of a gap between the White House and the administration itself, in that President Trump, of course, is famously not particularly interested in human rights and won't be particularly bothered that Lukashenko is abusing human rights in Belarus. On the other hand, the, the administration is very, very keen to uh, to help the opposition forces in the country. They've, they got Pompeo to release, release quite a strong statement condemning the human rights abuse. And I think with any luck, Belarus is not sufficiently important enough a country on the US radar screen for, for Trump to become personally involved. And he may actually leave Pompeo in the State Department to, to run the, the US response to Belarus, which means I think we may well see the US lining up with the EU and the United Kingdom in a unified, strong Western response to what's going on. I think there's at least a, a fairly good hope of that. I mean, traditionally, at least in the last few months, the US has certainly been a bit less concerned about human rights than the European Union has been, because as you said, it's been keen to restore relations to a high level with Minsk for geopolitical reasons to pull Belarus a bit further out of the Russian sphere of influence. But I think what's happened now makes it very hard for the US not to join the EU and the UK in taking quite a strong response. Perhaps we could come back briefly, Ian, to the issue of Russia, which is certainly of major concern to, as we've already discussed, the US and the EU and what happens in Belarus. Is there a risk, do you think, Ian, that if a sort of colour revolution begins to emerge in Minsk, if the regime starts to splinter, if the demonstrators become more powerful and more self-confident, and if if Lukashenko is unable to restore stability easily, might might Russia intervene militarily? We've said that it has a lot of levers it can pull to influence Belarus, but maybe could it actually go the whole way and send in troops, as it's done in recent years to both Georgia and Ukraine? I mean, it's possible, but it seems to me that they have a lot of levers before they reach that stage. And indeed, in some respects, if they had to send regular troops across the the border, you know, to do a sort of Prague 1968, in effect, um, that, that would be something of a failure of Russian policy. You know, the Russians have very strong links with the Belarusian KGB, which is still called the KGB. They have many political and economic ties in Belarus. And I would be, I mean, my first expectation would be that if things start to become quite chaotic, the the Russians will put economic measures on Belarus to, to further destabilize the situation and then to claim that 
it is all resolvable, provided that you have a leadership in Minsk which is prepared to work more closely with, with Moscow. I think particularly in the east of the country, that's a message which may resonate. So I think we're a long way from the point where you'd see regular forces going across the border. But I think to go back to the, the phrase so often used in Ukraine, hybrid warfare might very much be on the uh, on the agenda if it looked as though the opposition were starting to achieve success in splitting the, the elite and perhaps moving in the direction of taking power or sharing power in Minsk. I think what, what Putin always wants to show is that democracy leads to chaos and a worse standard of living, because that is the, the important message within Russia, as well as keeping Belarus within his sphere of influence. Yes, um, it's, it's, of course, there was the example of Armenia in 2018, which did have a sort of democratic revolution, sort of colour revolution, and Moscow allowed that to happen because obviously the new Armenian regime said it was going to try and be nice to the Russians, which was one of the reasons why the Russians allowed it to happen. But of course, Armenia is a lot further away from Moscow than Minsk is. I guess if I was Mr. Putin sitting in Moscow and I saw the continued demonstrations in Khabarovsk in the Far East, and if there were going to be more pro-democratic demonstrations in Minsk, which is rather closer to Moscow than Khabarovsk, I might get a bit worried. And I'm sure, as he says, as you say, and he would try and stop things happening. But all we can say, I think, to conclude is that we don't know what's going to happen in Minsk. Things could get nastier. They could get better. It could be that more demonstrations do lead to some sort of direct or more likely, as you say, indirect Russian takeover or increasing influence in Minsk, which wouldn't be particularly good in, in my view. But it could be that um, the people power, the strong civil society does keep pushing ahead and forces the regime into some sort of dialogue with the opposition, as the Polish government has suggested, and that that leads to sort of peaceful, non-violent change and reform on a gradual basis, done in a way that doesn't provoke the Russians, not done in an anti-Russian way. And there's not much that people outside Belarus in the West can do to encourage that process, except to do what we can in terms of influence and sanctions and more help for civil society and so on. But I think we're all watching the country very closely. And it's what is quite clear is that the country is changing. It's it's not, it's looked like the most stable country in Europe. It's not stable anymore. It may change for the better. Let's hope so. It could change for the worse. Let's hope not. And thank you, Ian, for this taking part in this podcast. Well, thank you, Charles. And of course, we uh, hope that Katya will remain safe in Minsk and that um, when the, the internet is turned back on, we'll be able to hear something from her about how the situation is developing on the ground. Uh, but indeed, let's, uh, let's hope that things develop peacefully and that um, the violence that we've seen over the last couple of nights um, is not the, the beginning of something worse. Thank you very much and we'll be back with another podcast in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.